if you if you want to be an inventor, just go out and invent. Go out and find things to improve. And no matter how minor it is, you can be responsible for those improvements. I think on that, that that's a good thing. It's not so much to do then with the success of the person. Actually, very frequently, a lot of inventors are not successful people, but they're very often impactful people, right? In terms of changing society, changing the world around them, even if they didn't get the riches that come alongside it. Welcome to the Conservative Curious Podcast. Where we uncover niche thinkers at the intersection of philosophy, tech, and culture. I'm your host Jessica Dang, alongside my friend and co-host Ani Pai. In this episode, we talk to Anton House, historian in residence at the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufactures, and Commerce, and author of Arts and Minds: How the Royal Society of Arts Changed a Nation. He's also the head of innovation research at the Entrepreneurs Network, a UK-based think tank. We talked to Anton about the improving mentality, what we can learn from Britain's 300-year period of technological advancement, why innovators should also be cultural entrepreneurs, and how paranoia can spark innovation. Does the improving mentality come from? I think it's been around and possibly reinvented many times throughout history, and has kind of always been around.、Um, but it doesn't necessarily spread that easily. It seems as though you have certain periods throughout history in certain locations where the improving mentality spreads a bit better. That you get these kind of, I guess,、um, a critical mass of people that can have a wider impact on the society as a whole. Song Dynasty China is a famous example. The Islamic world, perhaps of the eighth to twelfth centuries, is a great example. It's interesting how, as to how concentrated that was on particular regions, because obviously it's a very large region from Spain all the way to Iraq. The Dutch Republic of the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries is another example. Renaissance Italy is another. I think Tokugawa Japan is often cited as one, although I don't know much about the specifics of that. And Britain is another of these. What's often called efflorescences, these bubblings up of innovation of economic activity. Uh, I think all of those have in common that some people have this improving mentality amongst the group of people who are driving that forward. So, just as you have a James Watt in England, you have a Leonardo da Vinci in Italy, you have a、uh, Christian Huygens in the Dutch Republic, you have a、uh, Su Song in in Song Dynasty China, right? That you have all of you have. People who have these groups around them, especially that are that are driving innovation improvement.、Um, what makes Britain special, though, I, I think, is that those inventors were uniquely successful in spreading it further and creating institutions that would continue that spread. Maybe we're always in a state where we think that things are sliding and we have to like push against the tide. When the Royal Society started, maybe they were in the same mindset, and we've never left that mindset really. You know what's funny about that is that in other periods of history, people were making fun of technology because they were so scared of what it would do. When people in Detroit were making the internal combustion engine, people laughed at them because they knew that it would change their lives forever. And today, we laugh at technology because we know that it won't. That the next app for Uber for dogs will just you know perish in five years. 
years and they're not doing enough. I think I'm optimistic, but I think our average person is just like, oh, more Facebook ads, more Google ads. I think in the sense, even the Royal Society grew up in that period where there was like massive industrial change in technology, but in society. And at the same time, I think that has a lot of parallels to today. I guess people do fear technology, though. They, they fear their data being stolen or they fear identity theft or they fear not necessarily technology itself, but I guess technology being used towards new and newly exciting and nefarious ends, right? Um, the same with AI. I think there's that kind of, there is a fear that perhaps it'll get, you know, too powerful and, and or become a tool for governments or for terrorists or something to, to achieve, again, nefarious ends. I saw on Twitter, I don't know if you guys have seen this video clip of a robot that was doing gymnastics, but it basically moved like a human. It was jumping and doing cartwheels and things. And the person who posted it said, imagine, imagine what this robot can do in five to 10 years. And some tech reporter was like, it will kill us. It will kill us. So you said this one line that always stuck with me, which was that in this period, if you want to innovate, go to France. But if you want to tinker, go to Britain. Yeah. So I like to use that phrase because it underscores how natural philosophy was very much a European phenomenon, but that Britain seems to have had a marginal advantage when it came to applying it towards, you know, machinery to what you might call useful ends to improvement. Um, but also that Britain by 1700, when this mantra, this kind of proverb starts to come about, he's already gaining this international reputation for improvement, for tinkering. Um, a lot earlier than a lot of people tend to place the Industrial Revolution, right? If I say Industrial Industrial Revolution, you probably think roughly 1750s to 1830s. For the, whereas if Britain already has that reputation by 1700, that suggests that actually we need to be thinking much earlier for the sources of those later changes as well. The other thing that I read that was interesting was when you said when the Royal Society started, that innovators didn't want to share their trade secrets. Yeah. So I, nowadays, I think this is one of the primary reasons for the patent system. It's not so much about giving people the monopoly to incentivize them to do the inventing. I think people tend to invent things anyway. Um, it's rather to make it make it more likely for them to actually reveal their secrets. You know, people have always invented things. They've always improved things, but they haven't necessarily always shared what those improvements are. So one of the big fears that you have since the 16th century um, and certainly onwards is that we're seeing all of this improvement, but people are just losing those improvements because whoever kept it secret dies out or they, you know, they don't teach their apprentice properly. Um, and so whatever technological advancements we had um, just kind of disappears and, and goes backwards that we don't see improvement compounding year on year on year. Um, or even worse than that, that we see all sorts of duplication, that one person invents something, keeps it a secret. Another person basically reinvents the, the same thing, keeps it a secret. And so we put all of this effort wasted where what could have happened is someone could have invented something, made it public. And then the other person, instead of reinventing that thing, could have seen the thing they made public and then improved on that. And so we'd have had, you know, on net some progress overall. A lot of the time when we think about a lot of the institutions that promote invention, we think of it as being encouraging, you know, more inventive activity. I think a lot of actually the, the main role of it is to simply prevent the, the wasteful duplication, to prevent the waste that you get from secrecy that, and the, the risk that things don't keep going forward, but can potentially you know, risk sliding backwards. Yeah, one of the pushbacks to the current like great founder mentality or you know the great man theory of history, it's a matter of luck who gets there first, right? There's so many people who stumble upon the same discovery at roughly the same time and whoever gets the credit got it by a matter of days or hours or weeks even. Right, ultimately individuals are still doing the invention, they're still doing the tinkering. 
know, a lot of my own approach to this for the work, not so much for my book about the Royal Society of Arts, but definitely about my broader project, which is to uncover what's happening from the 16th through the 19th century, is looking at the individuals who are doing the invention. Because it's a surprisingly small number of people. Now, the risk with completely throwing out any theory that it's to do with individuals is to say, well, invention's just going to happen anyway. Why should I bother doing the tinkering? Why should I bother doing the improving? And if everyone believes that, obviously no one's going to do it. I think we, we have we have a really, really significant collective action problem if that were to occur. Um, so in a sense, great man theory or not so much great man theory, but glorifying inventors can have a real use in, in terms of inspiring other people to emulate. Them. And actually, I think in, the, in uh, what happens in the 18th, late 18th and early 19th centuries is almost a purposeful creation of myths about inventors, you know, casting them as heroes unlike generals and politicians and lawyers or clergymen who had been the traditional people to look up to, but creating a new pantheon of people to look up to and to emulate. But what's crucial about that is actually, I think, to not focus too much on this idea of genius, right? Because if someone's a genius, you can't emulate them, right? If I said, why, why aren't you more like Elon Musk? You'd be like, oh my God, how would I even start? Is it the connections you need? Is, it, is there some kind of innate spark? Is there some kind of something about the way his mind works? Given the mythos that's kind of being created around certain people like that, it's like, you know, I can't just go to someone in the street and say, be Bill Gates. You know, they're like, How do, you know, where do you, what, you know, where does one start with that? But if you create the kind of myth that's not so much focusing on their Actually, I mean, even think, I'm thinking about that Netflix documentary. I don't know if you saw it about Bill Gates. It casts him almost as being this kind of unique, like no one could ever be like him kind of character. And I think that's probably both wrong and bad for society in terms of the kind of narrative that that, that, that tells. What we really want is the sort of thing that I think was so useful in the Victorian era. And I think they created these myths on purpose, which is this idea that you can actually just do this regardless of who you are. And that all it takes is a bit of dedication to the cause. Now, over time, that can have a kind of bad edge to it because it becomes, well, why don't you, why are you so poor? Why don't you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps? Right. And that can be an extremely negative thing and have all sorts of negative ramifications. But if we choose a kind of softer version of that, which would be, you know, simply if you if you want to be an inventor, just go out and invent, go out and find things to improve. And no matter how minor it is, you can be responsible for those improvements. I think on net that that's a good thing. It's not so much to do then with the success of the person. Actually, very frequently, a lot of inventors are not successful people, but they're very often impactful people, right, in terms of changing society, changing the world around them, even if they didn't get the riches that come alongside it. I think what happened in the 1860s, especially the work of people like Samuel Smiles, for example, um, he wrote a book called Self-Help. Now, nowadays, self-help books are everywhere. This is the, one of the major bestsellers of the 1860s, 70s, 80s. And that book is basically a bunch of stories about inventors and how they came from sometimes the lowest forms of poverty or, you know, completely in debt or their father died really early and they were left as, you know, penniless orphan and somehow managed to change the world by inventing the steam engine or whatever. And those are extremely appealing narratives. And as I say, that can have a bad effect if we if we just say that that, that wealth is perhaps tied to industry. Um, but if we instead focus on the fact that he's he's creating these narratives that anyone essentially can be an improver, can be an inventor, and that I think can be extremely valuable. I'm not sure what people are teaching children in schools, but all the information is there and it is accessible. And I'm just thinking. 
to a certain degree at, during that time in the 18th century, how there was a boom in self-help books. I know that Arnold Bennett wrote How to Live with 24 Hours a Day about time management. I wonder if education going forward is more about teaching this knowledge that's been accumulated over time and just giving people the tools to take better notes or absorb information better and then find what you want, like go explore the world, go explore the information that you want and then see where it goes from there. Funnily enough, this was actually one of the things that the Society of Arts did try to do in the 70s and 80s. They had a program called Education for Capability, um, which was and the idea was that you would they were trying to create a curriculum in schools that would be about promoting kind of general capabilities, as you pretty much described there, you know, your ability to go out and find information, your ability to problem solve and so on. And partly because a lot of people who were members of the side at the time, you know, people who were very successful in their careers, businessmen and chairman of the board or whatever, and a lot of other people, they were looking at the education system as it was becoming in the 70s and 80s and saying, you know what, I'm, I'm not an expert in the thing that I ended up being very successful in. So clearly what's key here is not the individual, is not the actual knowledge itself, but seems to be capability that I can just go out and I can take on these new roles and, and do things. I think that idea keeps cropping up. I've noticed it, you know, very early, you know, even in the 1940s, you'll see people talking about we should, the, I, this idea that knowledge, the knowledge itself, the kind of the facts, if you like, that get taught in schools aren't what's important. It's, it's the, the skills that come alongside them. Now, the problem is it's easier said than done. How do you create curricula that teachers can actually conform to to try and do those things? And very often, you know, I find that, say, with the national curriculum in, in Britain, Often, actually, it is trying to do, trying to promote those capabilities, but trying to do it around certain sets of facts that they hope that everyone will learn. Again, yeah, I'm not sure how to square that circle and do it effectively and do it in a way that scales. And I think those have been some of the major challenges, right? The Society of Arts' way of doing it in the 80s and 90s, when they actually actually tried to apply it in schools specifically, didn't last very long because of the pressures of examinations and the pressures of qualifications that parents rightly, frankly, care about. Um, but also it's worth bearing in mind the other role of education, which is to very often create a common set of things that everybody knows or sort of certain touchstones that everyone can refer to. When, when we think of what education looked like in the 18th century, you know, a lot of it would have been focused on the classics and the Bible, which seems kind of useless. Um, but when you think of it as being, oh, it actually is providing everyone with common analogies that they can use, common stories that they all know, so that when it comes to making an argument, they can appeal to those, those common analogies. Um, in terms of the socializing effect there, I think that can be kind of useful in a, in a, in a slightly different way. Today, what would those common cultural touchstones be Harry Potter or, or, you know, yeah, Game so, of Thrones references. I guess that's no longer the case, but you know, how do you make analogies and talk about different types of people and talk about act immoral and virtu virtuous activities? To go back to the Mark Andreessen piece, It's Time to Build, he mentions that there is a lack of the will to build. You know, he talks about healthcare and transportation, education. Why aren't we building in these areas? Yeah, specifically, it's in the world of atoms, right? So people are doing a lot of software stuff, but why hasn't our physical world changed in 50 years? It's like what Jess was saying in, in those areas. Do you agree with that, Anton, or do you think this is happening anyway and we should just kind of be optimistic? I think it's happening anyway, but there's no point being Panglossian about it, right? We can be optimists, but we shouldn't be debilitated by that optimism. 
So if we see room for things that we can do to, to advance that further, we should actually go out and do it rather than expecting that it's just going to happen anyway. Um, we shouldn't be kind of fatalistically optimistic, if you see what I mean. I think at the end, he's like, to my critics, if you have problems with me suggesting what to build, you know, I'm all ears. Like, what do you think we should build? There were a lot of people who were saying, well, you're investing on all these gaming apps and you're telling us that we need to build on healthcare and better transportation. Should we just build anything and everything? I suspect the pie is large enough that we shouldn't worry about a lot of resources being going into, let's say, unproductive or less productive ends at the expense of other ends. Um, and also, you know, sometimes an advancement, something that seems kind of useless, can actually turn out in the end to have extraordinarily useful fruit further on. And that was a lot of what the early Royal Society and the Society of Arts were trying to harp on increasingly about, which was that, you know, to, to, to save science, to actually promote it, you have to, you have to con consistently justify it and, and actually pointing to examples where the unexpected can turn into the useful um, can be very useful for the, the project as a whole. Given that everything is happening and we can see the degradation of our institutions through the coronavirus, do you think we should be constructing this parallel system from scratch? I, I do think that when it comes to institutional change, you need to do a bit of both. That sometimes you need to create alternatives where the current ways aren't working. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be doing lobbying to try and get existing institutions to also be better. Because otherwise, I think there's a risk that you kind of get a proliferation of institutions that are all sorts of replicating just doing the same sort of thing. This is something that you see, I think every generation of inventors, every generation of scientists kind of has to do this, has to do this and try to make those sorts of decisions. What we see historically is that ultimately inventors were very good at both creating bottom-up alternatives and at the same time leveraging those bottom-up alternatives to then create the sorts of changes that you see it kind of in more top-down or formalized ways. So what it sounds like is the Royal Society of Arts really galvanized all these inventors and created a hub for information and help change policies to drive innovation. I don't know if we're lacking that today, if we need more of that today, but having these innovators be, uh, as you say, cultural entrepreneurs and creating institutions to drive that forward. Yeah, so I think that's, I guess, my take on the time to build mantra is that if we're going to build things, we shouldn't just be doing the inventions or infrastructure improvements, whatever, alone, that we should also be creating institutions that make those things easier um, to do in the future. You know, it's much easier to galvanize around these sorts of things and actually do them if you already have the kind of social infrastructure that comes with it. Regular meeting places, regular meetings, regular kinds of discussion. There's all sorts of kind of things that can be done by individuals or small small groups of individuals that can have an outsized effect. I mean, you see this with the Society of Arts, right? So by the 1830s and 40s, it's in decline, but is taken over in the 1840s by a small group of mostly radical um, utilitarian reformers and is used to dramatic success in reforming the patent system in the 1850s. I mean, they pretty much literally write the law and then it gets passed or they write the bill that gets passed as a law in transforming the copyright system in the 1860s, in organizing the Great Exhibition, the first of the world's fairs in 1851. Like it, it becomes more of a, I guess, partly a lobby group, partly a kind of social series of social events with you know, you know, lectures on particular topics or ones that crossed different boundaries and brought inventors in various or scientists in various different fields into the same room and into the same discussion, into the same social circle and a kind of exhibition holding organization as well, which is it's a whole other thing. 
um, that's perhaps worth mentioning as another kind of institution that we don't really see very much today in the form in which they're intended, which is exhibitions of industry as an engine of progress. The World's Fairs originally were very much about that. They weren't the kind of national branding exercises that I think they've become in the past 50 or so years. All these things that are meant to inform and inspire, we just need more of that. That's the lesson to be had from what you've studied. Um, That sort of thing, I think more social versions of that sort of thing, where people are physically meeting is important. When it comes to exhibitions, though, I mean, The idea is you would put all of the machinery of the various different nations in the same room and people would be able to compare like with like or all the designs of different places in the world in the same room. And so consumers can compare like with like. So producers can see who's ahead, who's behind, what they can do to catch up, you know, to spread the latest improvements more easily. And consumers can see who's ahead, who's behind and what they should be demanding from their domestic producers or their local producers so they can raise their game when it comes to consumption, right? The idea of an exhibition is to expose people to what they didn't even realize they wanted. So again, something that we see in isolated ways, but I don't think we've seen it in, I think, since the 1890s or early 1900s in that kind of scale. What else can we learn from that 300-year period of technological advancement in Britain? Um, so there's one bit I didn't really mention. You know, publication of things is extremely important as well. Let's say if you wanted to reform the patent system in the 1780s. Now, by that stage, you had patents in which people were specifying in written form what, what their inventions consisted of, specifications. But those specifications were all held in Chancery Lane in central London. You had to pay a fee to actually go and read them or certainly to get a copy of them. These were not especially accessible things. And yet in the 1780s and 90s, a few, a handful of inventors start publishing those details part, you know, in magazine. Right? This is a very seemingly minor change, right? This is something that only a few individuals basically take it upon themselves to do. They basically just create a magazine. Big deal. Big deal, actually. Right. This is people for the first time making patents work in the way that they do today by making very public the details of inventions, because it's not like the patent system itself did that. It's not like there was its own kind of automatic means of publication the way that we would expect today. Right. It'd be a bit like imagine if all patents were secret and somebody had to today create a website to show all of the details of them. That would be a huge deal in terms of being able to improve on those things. And I think today you've probably got a lot of examples of the sorts of things that could be done in that way, right? Where information already exists, is sort of hidden somewhere, or if it's not hidden, even if it's open, is perhaps not as accessible as it could be and could be made more so. There have been so many vectors of change that you wonder even now, where are we not paying enough attention, right? I feel that certain hype cycles often mask the underlying nature of other fields that are blooming. For example, I was looking and speaking to this one company called uh, Cobalt Metals, which is actually trying to make a Google Maps for underneath the earth to uh, eradicate the amount of nasty mining institutions, especially in the Congo and these other areas, because they actually send kids to these places and, you know, God knows what happens to them. But, you know, those things to me, I think, were what I dreamed about doing as a kid, right? Like those really moonshot projects. Whereas like now everyone I know just thinks of software and like ads as tech. And to me, I think that's one interesting thing about what you're doing, which is that no, no, you can actually do what you want to do in in these very deep technology areas, but it doesn't just have to be what people consider as technology. 
Yeah, so I think expanding the definition of what we think of as improvement is important. But also, I mean, here's the other thing that we find from this period is that the majority of the inventors that I study, the almost 1,500 of them, uh, which is the kind of basis of my overall project, my second book when, it eventually, when I eventually finish writing it, one of the main things about them is that they're polymaths. They're not just consigning themselves to individual types of invention, right? It's not like if I were to code today's inventors, how many of them? you know, in, in my Excel spreadsheet of them, would I just put coder or you know, software as the industry? Or would I, as I, you know, do for the ones in my actual list, you know, put things like steam engines, ceramics, and I don't know, um, educational improvements, all, all for just one person, right? These people are applying themselves to anything and everything, regardless of even when, whether they have the skill in those things, right? If they lack the skill in it, all they do is they find people who actually know what they're doing and they consult with those people or pay those people to help them with the bits that they can't do themselves. Or they just teach themselves how to do it because actually knowledge is, is relatively easy to come by. You know, one thing I, I notice is that a lot of people who do an extraordinary amount and I would consider experts, world experts perhaps in their field, are often very young. And when I think of how, how long they must have actually been thinking about these things in a concerted way, it can't be more than just a few years, really. Right? You can become an expert in a shockingly short period of time, especially today in terms of the accessibility of information. If anything, the skill isn't trying to discern what's good information, what's not, because there's just so bloody much of it. Application of, 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 our, of our improving mentality to as many different things as possible um, is also an especially valuable thing that we could perhaps do more of. And that maybe where we overvalue or maybe our educational system or perhaps society in general overvalue specialization. Um, and that's not, by the way, something that I think is unique to today. Um, I do think in general, you know, throughout history, people have encouraged others to, to not, not, not stray from their lane, you know, in the same way that in the 16th century, it may have, you know, some people are complaining that people are getting above themselves and trying to make money and becoming like the gentry and the nobility because of, the, of their manufactures or their mercantile activities. Um, in much the same way in the 18th century, you see people who, you know, are a member of a guild for a particular um, industry and they're trying, they're not, they're not allowing people in another industry to, to trade in theirs um, without at least paying their guild dues. Uh, trying to gain access to these exclusive societies, right? We've had that opposition to polymathy, you know, a lot through history. It's just something that, again, I think you need to create encouragement, uh, create institutions. And I mean often bottom-up institutions, right? Create clubs, if you like, societies that encourage that kind of generality. If you could sum up what you think we can apply today to drive innovation. I would say I think it's a good thing that we have a few pessimists. As individuals, the thing that we should be doing is setting up the kinds of institutions, the kinds of things that make innovation easier for other people as much as possible. So if you're an inventor, if you're a scientist, if you're an entrepreneur, if you're someone based in Silicon Valley, let's say, or in whatever other international tech hub exists, you know, you should be reaching out to other people with similar interests and organizing yourselves into clubs and societies, um, formalizing the ones that are already informal as much as possible um, or where appropriate, rallying around innovation in general, even if it's outside of your direct expertise. Um, I think those people should also be looking at things outside of their comfort zone, 
looking at problems that may not be in their direct expertise and actually having a go at solving those problems and seeing room for improvement in those, be more polymathic. And I think, you know, as I mentioned, that pessimists have been useful in this regard, that people like people saying warning of stagnation are good in a sense, because even if that stagnation isn't true, if we have more innovation anyway, because of our paranoia that things are slowing down, that's even better. Right? So regardless of whether stagnation is real or not, if we do something about the stagnation, even if it's a myth, means that if, if that means we get faster innovation in the future, that means you know higher living standards, greater happiness, greater freedom for people, you know fewer problems, um, a, a more beautiful world, depending on the kinds of things that you're optimizing for, be it you know could be good design as much as anything. Those things will be you know a few years, perhaps a few decades further, you know, uh, uh, closer in the future than they would otherwise have been. And that's only to the good. Now, one of the things that we are, I've often found throughout my research is that one of the most useful things for British inventors for hundreds of years has been paranoia. This idea that Britain is in some way falling behind is somehow not as good as other countries when it comes to its inventions, when it comes to its science, when it comes to its engineering. The kinds of narratives that you see of decline or stagnation are actually pervasive. They're there throughout. And those are often useful because they're used by inventors and innovators to get the sorts of changes that, for the next generation or for their own generation, push those things a bit further forward. Maybe Mark Andreessen's call to action in his essay, It's Time to Build, was exactly the wake-up call we needed to hear. But when it comes to innovation, we can't forget to also build an ecosystem that encourages the exchange of information and ideas as well as furthers what Anton refers to as the improving mentality. Let's formalize those social ties and networks. Let's build those institutions that drive innovation. Let's start tinkering. Thanks for listening. We hope you liked this episode. To purchase Anton's book, Arts and Minds, visit conservativecurious.com forward slash shop. To be on our list for exclusive content and special invitations, subscribe at conservativecurious.com. Until next time, stay curious. Have you have you come to America? Have you spent any time over here? Yeah, I lived in uh, Rhode Island for a year. I was at Brown oh. as a postdoc. What'd you think? Did you like it? It's a different country. It is a very different country. It was interesting, actually, because some I think in some respects, America seemed very far behind Europe, particularly when it came to things like bank payments. I feel like we're, we're light years ahead of it. I mean, just bizarre practices like leaving your, your card to a waiter to take away and then come back and you sign for it. Like how, how barbaric. <laughs> you know, what?